I think that a lot of businesses are waking up and realizing that if they don't hop on the machine learning train, they're going to fall behind. You know, the machine learning, when done right, can be that transformational competitive advantage. And so we are in very much a arms race to, to help equip these businesses that want to transform. listening to Innovators, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I am your host, Zach DeWitt. Today, we are joined by Jason Tan. Jason is a co-founder and CEO of SIFT. Founded in 2011, SIFT is a leader in digital trust and safety, as a company uses machine learning to protect its customers from bad actors, including chargebacks, fake accounts, spam, account takeovers, etc., while helping the customers reduce friction and grow revenue. SIFT's customers include LinkedIn, Twitter, Airbnb, Match.com, Wayfair, OpenTable, Yelp, and many other leading retailers, financial services, marketplaces, and content sites. SIFT has raised over $100 million in venture funding. I think you will greatly enjoy today's episode as Jason shares his thoughts around applied AI and what it means for our broader business economy. Welcome. Please introduce yourself. Hey, guys. I'm Jason Tan. I am the co-founder and CEO of a company called SIFT, headquartered here in San Francisco. And what were you doing prior to founding SIFT? I was the CTO of a small startup in Seattle called Buzz Labs. We were eight people trying to use machine learning to understand the sentiment hidden in social media comments and reviews and distilling that into actionable insights for small businesses. And that was that startup was acquired by IAC in 2011. Uh, that's really interesting. So you were very early to the applied AI ML game. That's great to hear. So Jason, what is SIFT? We use machine learning to help businesses build out their trust and safety efforts. And so really uh, two parts of that. One is preventing fraud uh, before it happens. So stolen credit cards, uh, fake accounts, compromised logins, spammy content. How do you stop that before it happens? And then on the flip side, how do you provide frictionless and delightful experiences to trustworthy customers uh, who are not risky? Right now, I think a lot of the internet operates like airport security, and it really deserves more of a a TSA pre-type model. It really should be innocent until proven guilty. And how did you come up with the idea for SIF? Was this something you experienced firsthand in your prior company? Well, when we started the company back in 2011, we were effectively a solution in search of a problem. We knew that machine learning was going to disrupt a lot of different industries, but we wanted to find a problem domain where the value proposition would really stick. And so one of the exercises we did um, when we were going through Y Combinator in the summer of 2011 was to ask our friends who worked at different tech companies, what are some challenges that your business is dealing with? And uh, fraud came up as a big problem that people wanted help with. And us being outsiders into the fraud space, I think, helped us approach this domain with first principles and, and more modern perspectives on how to solve that problem effectively. And, you know, we had taken inspiration from what we had learned ourselves working at 
the likes of Google or Amazon or Facebook, other technology companies, you know, how do they solve this problem internally? And can we democratize that to the rest of the internet? So SIF certainly has come a long way since 2011. Let's talk a little bit about who some of your customers are today and some sampled use cases for how they're working with SIFT. Yeah, so our customers uh, go across a wide variety of different verticals and geographies. Um, e-commerce is a big one for us. Travel, on-demand space, dating communities and, and whatnot are also big. Um, so some of our customers include Airbnb, Wayfair, Match.com. Uh, those are the ones I can mention by name. But it's been interesting to see the adoption of our technology platform across a seemingly diverse uh, set of customers. And everyone can relate to fraud and can come up with different ideas of where there be maybe fraud perpetrated. But um, how do you actually quantify how big of a market fraud is? So there's a couple of different angles here. One is just betting long on the Internet. <laughs> and I know this sounds very top down, but I think it's a good place to start. E-commerce is just less than 15% of retail sales in the U.S., and it's continuing to grow rapidly. So you can imagine that over the next few decades, that equation will be flipped on its head. And so there's going to be all this activity online. You can bet that the bad actors will follow. They will chase where the action's going. And on top of that, I think for a lot of these bad actors, they see the internet as a more scalable way to operationalize what they're trying to accomplish. It's a massive opportunity. Now, some figures back into this, the chargeback rates can range from 50 basis points to 5% of sales and e-commerce last year alone worldwide was more than $4 trillion of sales. And that's continuing to grow rapidly, like I said. That's just one angle of it, right? We I've, I've mentioned that we solve for account takeover and, and fake accounts and also spammy content, which are seeing a lot of activity themselves. You know, Facebook just reported that over the last 10 years, they took down more than 260 million fake accounts. YouTube uh, had to hire a few thousand people to moderate content. You know, just imagine if you're a small company, what, what kind of resources you don't have to spend on this, these problems. That's the big opportunity that we see. So how does SIFT apply machine learning? And where did you get your initial data set from that you had to, that you used for training? So we got our initial data set from our early customers. It was a fake it till you make it scenario. Sure. Um, hustle <laughs> hustle, and, and try to show value in, in any way possible. And in terms of how we apply machine learning, it's really classifying end user behavior into a spectrum of trustworthiness or riskiness. Um, you know, really a probability of how likely is this person to commit fraud or not. And we collect this data event stream representing an end user's life cycle from the customers directly through our APIs and SDKs. And then on each event, we are trying to learn and update our models in real time so that our customers are able to take preventative action uh, as needed. Or if, like I said earlier, the end user is trustworthy, then our customers are able to reimagine how they serve their, their end user. What types of ML are you using? Yeah, so everyone asks whether SIFT has some secret sauce. I think the truth is that for most machine learning businesses, at least today, a lot of the hard work is actually in using the most basic algorithms, but doing so at scale in production, you know, mission-critical environments uh, with high reliability and low latency. 
And so our algorithms are very textbook today for the most part. It's naive Bayes, logistic regression, random force. These are algorithms you learn about in college. And we're not doing anything that fancy. We're starting to experiment with deep learning, but that's not a core part of our product, I would say. Um, but the real hard, if there was secret sauce of SIFT, it's the infrastructure we've built to handle thousands of events per second and put those events to work in less than 100 milliseconds at two nines or better reliability. Do your models go across customers? So if you you know take Match.com, they're probably using you with a ton of instances. As you train that model specifically for Match.com, do, will you apply similar learnings to other customers? Yes. Um, yeah. So that was something that early customers asked about and seemed interested in, and that has never stopped since we started the company. We all view this problem as one that shares a common enemy, and you know, sort of like Lord of the Rings, uh, we're all fighting Sauron. Uh, so, so every every color of business bands together to build a, a more shared and powerful network. It's interesting. There's a lot of benchmarking out there for SaaS businesses, right? In terms of the, all the different metrics, and you know, one of the metrics people look at is is how much of GNA of sales and marketing and R and D R and D accounts for. And I imagine earlier in a, in a company's life cycle, you know, R and D is is a larger percentage, and then it moves more towards sales and marketing. But as you think about SIFT and your roadmap going forward, you know how much of your budget is going into R&D at this point? That's a very timely question. It's something that my COO and I were just having a healthy debate on. We, we spend a lot on R&D. Now, I think you have to ask what are the components of that spending? And the unfortunate truth is that San Francisco has become extremely untenable and unsustainable in terms of uh, salaries and cost of living. And so I would say a lot of our R&D spending isn't so much on headcount. It's actually on paying rent to landlords and who are getting very fat and rich off of all this um, shortage of housing supply. And so I would rather that we spend that money on real talent, but it's kind of the reality we live in. Do you have uh, remote developers? Do you have we have a second back in office Seattle? in Seattle. Um, about twenty-five engineers are up there, and then we're thinking about, you know, structurally long-term. Are there other ways to uh, find great talent? And if you had to break out your engineering headcount by engineers that are working on the scale challenges of having these thousands of instances in any given second, versus more of the data science or machine learning uh, side of the house, how, how do you break out that headcount roughly? I think ballpark, it's roughly a third and a third and a third. So one third is the infrastructure and reliability, the core operations. One third is more of the accuracy-focused ML work. And then one third would be customer-facing tooling platforms that uh, help with their operations. You know, what's interesting is we only have one true data scientist at the organization today something we've learned over and over is that data scientists can add a lot of value, but they have to be really set up for success. And we did not feel ready to hire a bunch of data scientists until we had invested more in the infrastructure that would enable them to move autonomously. Mm -hmm. And so we're still doing a lot of investment there. And we've succeeded thus far by hiring engineers that like data, but they're primarily software engineers first that can write code 
relatively autonomously. In terms of the conversations you're having with new customers, um, do you find yourself having to explain how your machine learning is working? Are they asking about it? Are they excited about it? And how does this compare back in 2011? We were just starting out and machine learning was a much um, newer concept and it wasn't kind of in the, the tech everyday nomenclature like it is today. It definitely uh, has evolved, but it's still relatively nascent. My wake-up call was in 2013 when we went to this conference, this industry conference of ours called Merchant Risk Council, and we had this big booth that said in big capital letters, fight fraud with machine learning. And I remember the vice president of risk for a major retailer, like you know, Fortune 500 retailer, walked up to the booth, and the first question he asked me was, what's machine learning? And it blew my mind that that was the question. But since then, I've woken up, and that was 2013, I've woken up to the idea that we are very much in a bubble here in the Valley. The rest of the world is still grappling with the basics, and we need to meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. And I would say over the last six years, since then, awareness has dramatically improved. Adoption is still lagging, and that's to be expected. But education and evangelism are a big part of what we do. And this is an industry that is very used to solving these problems with rules-based systems, a lot of operational overhead, manual review. This is a paradigm shift. And machine learning often feels like a black box that they don't have any control over. And to some extent, it's true, but there's a lot of benefits to that approach as well. Mm -hmm. And we need to do the hard work of meeting them halfway, more than halfway to help them understand the path forward. Yeah. How, how do you think about the greatest challenges of actually being a company that uses so much ML? Is it the marketing side of things and explain it to your customers? Is it some of the technical challenges? What are some of the, the broad challenges that you face using so much ML? I think the one I, I worry most about on the long-term horizon is privacy regulation. As an internet user and citizen myself, I fully appreciate the intent behind a lot of these regulations. And I want to ensure that we're not tossing the baby out with the bathwater. I think that what we do is defensible and on a noble purpose. And all our customers would say so. And it's important that we try to draft these regulations in a way that take the nuance of the situation into account. We are not an advertiser. We're never going to be one. We're never going to resell our data. And given what we do, I feel like we should be allowed to put our customers' data to work if they opt in and let us do that. But I also appreciate that there's a fine line to be drawn to the other side. And so how do we strike the right balance? We talked about how big of a market fraud is. Um, I'm sure you have some some competitors. And talk a little bit about who are your competitors and, and how SIF really differentiates itself. Yeah, so there's two classes of competitors. One would be more of the legacy systems that are rules-based. Um, they've been around 10-plus years. Uh, a lot of established customers use them. I think you know they've done an incredible job of capturing a lot of the market before some of the newer entrants entered the space. And then now you have a new crop of technology advanced vendors like ourselves emerging. I think that a lot of businesses are 
waking up and realizing that if they don't hop on the machine learning train, they're going to fall behind. You know, machine learning, when done right, can be that transformational competitive advantage. And so we are in very much a arms race to to help equip these businesses that want to transform. And, you know, for us, we see this opportunity as much bigger than fraud. We use the words trust and safety very intentionally because a lot of the existing solutions and legacy approaches really focused on just security. And that leads down a road like airport security. You're not really thinking about the user experience. We think that tomorrow's innovative businesses are finding ways to eliminate that trade-off between security and friction. And that's going to be a big reason why they're competitive. And we think that trust and safety is the more holistic approach to solving this problem. And that holistic approach is afforded through modern technology. Yeah, so that's actually a perfect segue into my next question, which is, what is a big vision for SIFT? And you know, how, how does trust and safety uh, manifest itself in your product roadmap over the next five or 10 years? Yeah, it's really that conjunction. And it's not trust or safety, it's trust and safety. And we see some of our most innovative customers, you know, Airbnb, Twilio, etc. They really think about this problem holistically. And traditionally, these businesses would have silos between uh, marketing and product and risk and finance. They wouldn't talk to each other. They wouldn't work together. Trust and safety requires a holistic approach where you're not trying to optimize for just one of those variables. It's really looking at the big picture. How do we remove friction and risk from every interaction with our end user. Mm -hmm. And SIFT aims to power that decision in a way that is reliable, accurate, scalable, and able to help businesses reimagine the default user experience. If Amazon can do one-click checkout, why can't every other business be the same? It's a long road ahead, but this is a, a foundational shift in the way the internet would operate. Uh, you don't have a one-size-fits-all customer experience. Instead, you have something that's more contextual. So clearly, SIFT has become a lot more sophisticated since starting in 2011. You've acquired a lot more data, which has helped you train better models and become better at fraud and ultimately uh, creating more trust and safety. The adversarial users who are trying to get around SIFT, have they become equally more sophisticated so it's a constant treadmill that that you're running against. Yeah, this is a business that never gets boring. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You have a human adversary who is just as capable of using Amazon Web Services. Uh, literally, we have seen fraud rings spin up armies of EC2 instances around the world to make it look like they're coming from different parts of the globe. You know, we see businesses or these fraud rings use programmatic APIs to create fake identities. And it's really impressive how smart and motivated they are. And this traces back to the fact that a lot of this is coming from organized crime. 
they have resources and they think of this as a job. Mm-hmm. These are white collar criminals that walk into an office in Asia or Europe or wherever in the world and they have to monetize a stack of 10,000 stolen credit cards bought in the black market. And so as long as human nature fundamentally has both black and white, yin and yang, I think we're going to find this epic battle between good and evil, so to speak, ongoing forever. Do you work with a lot of fintech customers? Will you work with some of the the credit card processors or merchant acquirers or point of sale operators? Yeah, so we have a bunch of fintech partners, some, some payment processors, POS players, and then also in the remittance space, that's been a strong play for us. The crypto space has been sure. strong for us. Like I said earlier, it's been delightful to see the diversity of our customer base. And I think it speaks to the extensible technology platform that we've been chipping away at for the last eight years. How can our listeners follow the progress of SIFT? I mean, there may be people listening that want to join SIFT as an employee. Hopefully there are people listening that want to become a customer of SIFT. What's what's the best way to get in touch with your team? Yeah, so we have the website, SIFT.com. There's ways to get in touch with our sales team. We have a blog that we actively update, uh, both from a business perspective, industry perspective, and then we also have an engineering blog where we go deeper on some of the systems that we're building, implementing. And then, you know, we have a Twitter account that also actively shares and an Instagram in case you're curious about life within SIFT, what goes on at the office. How have you built your culture? I mean, obviously SIFT sounds like it has a potential to be a very mission-driven company, creating more trust and safety, preventing fraud. These are big ideas that a lot of developers and, and employees would, would be excited to join that that effort and and working towards. I mean, how, how do you think about fostering that that culture? Culture is something I think a lot about and have worked a lot on in the last eight years. It's something that I thought I would be able to control, but over the years I've learned that you have to let it go and you can only be a steward of it. And you have to, at some point, empower your people to own the culture and you're just providing guidance and championing and trying to drive the intention behind it, but you can't control it because culture is in its essence, very in the very nature, it is a byproduct of who you have at the company. Mm-hmm. So we have five core values at SIFT and uh, they're very simple, but that's the point. We want everyone to be able to remember and repeat them sure. in everyday language. I won't go through everyone, but our first core value is start with the customer. And that's reflected in, Every quarter, we bring a customer on site and we do a fireside chat with that customer to help the team put a name to a face and, and understand the real pain that our customers are dealing with. We talk about customers at our all hands and have the sales team present some deals that are ongoing that provide that insight as well. And product reviews, it always starts with you know the product management team saying, hey, here are some of the customers we talked to to validate this idea. You can't just have them be posters on the wall. You have to have those values mean something and have real consequence. That's wonderful to hear. Thank you for sharing that. So I'd love to pick your brain, given you're in, a, in a, just a very important seat here, you're in the front lines of um, applied ML. I'd love to pick your brain for a few minutes on how ML will impact our business economy. I wonder what happens once we get 
past some of the most obvious uh, headline grabbing use cases. All right, so self-driving cars gets a lot of press these days, as it should. It's really exciting. Or like ML being able to generate modern-looking art or music, sure. like that's cool. Like these are, but these these are the tip of the iceberg. I think that entrepreneurs are going to start diving into, and this may be a, a the wrong word, but boring problems that would benefit massively from some basic level of automation. And I'm talking like the most basic classification problems, the most basic clustering problems, like nothing too fancy. Because a lot of the press goes towards the cutting edge research, right. cutting edge innovation. Right. And that's cool. But I'm curious to see everyday mundane tasks get eliminated because a robot or a laptop hooked up to a webcam can do it better. Who knows? And the flip side of this will also be interesting to see how the workforce is impacted. There, there will be consequences of this automation. And are we able to, as a society, ensure that the slope of retraining and learning for that workforce that does get eliminated match the pace of automation? Yeah, there was an interesting article, I think it was in the New York Times last week, about how we're starting to be managed by algorithms. And the simple example they gave was Uber, that Uber drivers are nudged where to head based on surge pricing and where they'll be expected demand. If if a Warriors game is just ending, they'll tell a large percentage of their Uber drivers to head to head to Oakland. Do you see a world in the next decade or two where a lot of us are, are managed by algorithms in a similar fashion? This is dystopian, but I think we already are. Look at anyone and walking down the street, sitting on a park bench, they're checking LinkedIn or Instagram. They're being managed by an algorithm. The algorithm is choosing very carefully what content to show and is optimized to keep them browsing through that feed as long as possible. And this is this worries me. I feel uh, a bit awkward up here because I'm part of the problem in some ways. But I think how do we balance our human intentionality with the, the intelligence of machines. This is a, a deep, deep question that takes, uh, that's going to require a lot of different angles to be observed. Yeah. So we, we talked a little about some of the um, headline grabbing examples of, of ML. So, right. So I can call an Uber. I can go down downtown to the Amazon Go store where it uses computer vision to check me out of the store. You know, then I can walk a block as I'm checking LinkedIn and that's managed by an algorithm as well. So ML is all around us. But what what industries do you think that we will see the largest changes? I mean, obviously the the financial services could be a huge uh, industry that's that's augmented and disrupted and changed by ML. What what are, what are some other injuries you think will be impacted? I think it's a bit cliche, but the home I don't know if Alexa has really found its mainstream use cases yet, but the fact that that has penetrated as many homes as it has, fascinating, right? And everything about the home today, or mostly everything about the home today, is still stuck in the world of atoms. And what happens is more and more of the home is implemented with bits. Could you have homes that, I mean, nest, right? That's one of their marketing plays is that it's a machine learning powered thermostat. So this is kind of cheesy, but I'm sure it will happen in the next decade. A machine learning powered kitchen, a machine learning powered bed, 
machine learning powered toilet. And it's silly to hear that at first glance, but then you think more carefully, like there's a lot of inefficiencies and opportunities in how our homes serve us and how we use them. And I think technology could be assistance of assistance, but it can also be of overkill, right? And so again, finding that balance will be interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think about some of the benefits of machine learning. You talk about the bed or the kitchen, right? So it's it's reducing time or costs. It's more personalization, right? What, what are some of the other ways that machine learning manifests itself in terms of benefits? I think that if, if we take the automation value proposition to the logical extreme, I wonder if it can actually be a great equalizer. And maybe it's a great equalizer in not so great ways, but in some, but it, it commoditizes certain things to the point where no one can make it an advantage of their own. And I actually think a lot about this, but like if machine learning can really automate so much of what humans can do, do you actually end up with a world where humans are able to focus on purely creative tasks and things that only humans can do? Although that part is also starting to, become less and less well-defined because sure. it seems yeah. like the boundaries are blurred. Can the extreme outcome of commoditized machine learning actually be an economic equalizer? I'm not smart enough to think about this truly, but I, I do see some possibilities. Yes. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't know if anyone's smart enough to understand. I mean, it's a multivariable question, right? In terms yeah. of, there was an Economist article last summer basically saying that 47% of the U.S. jobs are in jeopardy based on advancements in AI or machine learning. But obviously, the article went on to say, hey, they're not going to be, those jobs will change or be replaced, but there'll be other opportunities for the humans that were in those jobs, right? I mean, it's the economy keeps evolving. You said it well, it's just going to be about retooling and re-equipping our workforce to work on different types of problems as as machine learning changes our, our business economy. Taking that to, to the next level, like, that 53% that they say won't be automated, I bet it will come sooner than we expect. Like software engineering is often referred to as something that's really hard to automate. I think that's actually just around the corner. I think we're going to start seeing exponential improvements in AI. And I think computers will soon be able to write a lot of code just as effectively as a human would. And <laughs> what do the engineers do then? I mean, it's kind of the, the grave that we dug for ourselves. And I come from a software engineering background. Where do we go after that yeah. frontier has been reached? That's fascinating. I mean, to that point, do, do you know what the, the number one job in 40 U.S. states is? The most popular common job? I want to guess trucking. Trucking, exactly. And number two is usually teacher. So trucking is an industry where it employs obviously a large number of Americans. And at some point over the next decade, there'll be autonomous trucking and there's already long haul autonomous trucking. And, yeah. um, you know, that that's a really interesting area, which will change very, very dramatically over the next couple of years. So what advice would you have for an entrepreneur who's starting a business right now, a data first business that's using machine learning? I mean, you, you were an alum of YC. I was just at the YC demo days a couple months back and there was, you know, now it's two stages and hundreds of companies. And, you know, a lot of the companies had machine learning or AI in their four or five word description. So what are some of the, the advice you'd give these young entrepreneurs now that, that are building data first businesses? Two things. Make sure you're solving a real problem because your buyer 
will not tend to buy a generalized platform or something that sounds too generalized. They're thinking very concretely about how will you help me today? And you have to be able to answer that question with brevity and in a compelling way. The second piece is somewhat related, but often the buyer doesn't care that you're doing machine learning. That is just an irrelevant detail. When people buy Teslas, the extent that they care about the technology is that they might know it's an electric car, but that's about it. They don't need to get into all the details of it. And Tesla does a great job of not overexposing those details. And I think for a lot of, especially like technical type founders, we often pride ourselves and get excited about the technology for the technology's sake. And from, from my experience, at least business buyers, you need to meet them on their terms and talk in their language. That burden is on you. Maybe talk a little bit about where you start with a business like this. You know, you talked a little bit about how you fake it till you make it with early customers in terms of training your models and, and being data first. I mean, talk a little bit about just the philosophy of, of starting with data, of using models and, and building a business, you know, from the ground up. Yeah, I would say that, especially in a B2B business, the definition of an MVP is often a moving target and you need to effectively act like a on-site consultant to your first five to 10 customers. And you're just doing whatever it takes so that they are coming back to you and asking for more. In our experience, at least, we were busting our ass to turn around feature requests every day, every week, because we just wanted something that was sticky. And when you have something that's sticky, then you can start thinking about how you charge for it. You can start scaling a little more. But that initial phase, and it's probably one of the cliffs that most startups fail to jump over, is building something that people really want. And that's the mantra that YC drills into yeah. you. And it's so obvious, but it's harder said than done. How did you identify who your first five customers could be and, and how did you actually win those first five customers? Yeah, we didn't spend much time identifying. We just spent a lot of time asking our investor network or friends like, hey, could we help you with this? You will learn very quickly if you're paying attention to your customers what actually matters to them. And for us, we got very lucky that partly because we were in the YC network, we got some introductions to other YC companies that were suffering from fraud. And they're very gracious to give us a shot um, in the early days when no one else would. And so there is some value sometimes to networks like YC. Mm -hmm. And then I think once you get that initial base, you're moving away from that on-site consultant mode of operation to abstraction. You're trying to understand what are the core features that cut across all these different customers and then the next 50 that we want. Something we did not spend enough time on, but it still worked out just fine, is customer selection and targeting. Those are critical, can be critical, critical choices that drive huge long-term outcomes for the better or worse. So choosing where you want to play in the market, you know, is it SMB, is it mid-market, is it enterprise, is it US focus, is it global, is it, you know, this vertical or this vertical? 
Uh, is it sea level buyers or not? Those choices are don't overthink them, but do spend some time on it if you can. Yeah, customer selection is a strategy. Absolutely, it's, it's the strategy. It's the strategy, and, yeah. you, and it sounds like you've grown nicely with some of your customers, right? I mean, you you, you named some pretty big customers. Airbnb, they started around the same time as you. I don't know when you brought them on as a customer, but presumably if you brought them on earlier, you know, in the first couple of years, you've, you've grown with them in a, in a big way. So that's that's something that works really well for companies, especially companies out here that are targeting you know, high growth kind of mid-market companies. Because when you do your initial sale to them, it doesn't feel like enterprise business. But three years later, it's definitely an enterprise company, enterprise account. Yeah. And, you know, something for us, like we did not appreciate enough was that what we are selling is a solution. And we thought we could sell a utility. I think a lot of developers look at Twilio as like this fantastically repeatable model. And, you know, in our series A, we would even mention them as a source of inspiration for how we want to scale and operate. And there's a lot to like, but you can't fit a square peg into a round hole. And Twilio, part of why it works so well the way it does is because it's each utility is an atomic unit of value and it's very simple and straightforward to integrate and they've done an incredible job of designing it that way but sometimes that's not what you that doesn't fit what you are selling and you have to adapt and so for us you know we're eight years later from when we started we're a lot of a heavier touch sales cycle than i expected but then with that also comes a much higher average contract value yeah and a stickier customer too if they're exactly. going through this whole pro- integration process they're going to stick stick exactly. around with you right exactly so there's pros and cons to all the different business models exactly well this has been such a pleasure and you know i'm really grateful for your time thank you zach um your insights are invaluable so thank you for so much for joining my pleasure the takeaways from today's episode are one digital fraud is a massive and growing category with increasingly sophisticated actors Two, SIFT is a category-leading provider of digital trust and safety. And three, SIFT relies on both ingesting large amounts of customer data and applying machine learning to these data sets to improve its fraud models and ultimately protect its customers. Thank you for listening to Innovators. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I would greatly appreciate if you could share a podcast with one person who you think would greatly enjoy hearing about how the next wave of business leaders is using applied AI to reshape our business economy. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt or email me at Zach at wing.vc.